Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 57 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking with David Harsanyi, syndicated columnist and senior editor with TheFederalist.com. He's one of my go-to thinkers on the latest news, and he's also really pretty savvy about the pop culture scene. This week's show is sponsored by Chelsea Handler's School of Activism, where you get extra credit for dropping F-bombs in your tweets. Before my chat with David, I want to explore Hollywood's newfound bravery regarding Woody Allen. And before I begin, I just want to kind of share a little bit of background on him from my personal perspective. I've always loved Woody Allen, especially his films, obviously. Uh, I grew up watching his comedies, laughed and laughed. My dad introduced me to Take the Money and Run years and years ago, and that kind of just set me off to the races. I've just enjoyed his films over the years, and yes, we've had clunkers, but boy, every few years he uncorks another excellent film, and it's been a joy to watch his career blossom. But of course... There's more to his career than his films. There's also his pi- private life, and that's been disturbing to say the very least. Uh, you know, it's hard to forget that story involving how he started to romance his girlfriend, Mia Farrow's adopted daughter, and his excuse was the heart wants what it wants. That's gross. Later, we learned that daughter Dylan Farrow accused Woody Allen of sexually abusing her over a period of time. Those accusations were powerful, they may very well be true, but they didn't hurt his career at all. Big, big time stars kept going to him, flocking to him, looking to star in his films, eager to read those Woody Allen scripts and play those amazing characters. Nothing really changed with Woody Allen. The stories came, they went, the actors just kept on making films with Woody. But that's not happening right now, or at least it appears to be changing. We've had a flurry of actors, including Colin Firth and Rebecca Hall, say, yes, I worked with Woody in the past, but boy, I wouldn't do it again. I've learned too much. I've changed my mind. Woody Allen is off my uh, radar when it comes to new movies, new roles. But of course, Woody Allen's about 82 right now, give or take. And how many more movies will he have in him? Does he have actual roles for those particular actors? And why now? Why all of a sudden? Just because the Harvey Weinstein scandal is broken, we've become much more woke than we ever were. It's now time to disown Woody Allen, past and present. It just seems absolutely dishonest, absolutely hypocritical. And it's exactly why all the statements and all the activism from Hollywood drives me crazy. And I know I'm not alone. When actors make these supposed brave stances, it just sounds hollow. If you really wanted to make a statement, you could have turned down those roles you took years ago. The Dylan Farrow accusations aren't new. They're old news at this point. We knew all about them. Now, of course, he wasn't convicted in a court of law. We don't know the true, true story. It's one person's word against the other. But to all of a sudden say, hey, I'm going to assume Dylan Farrow is telling the truth and Woody is off my, my career radar, it just, God, it's just more of the same from Hollywood. It drives me crazy. You know, I'll still watch Woody Allen movies. Uh, You know, his recent output has not been nearly the same as it once was. And who knows what's left in his creative tank at this point. But get the feeling that Hollywood is finally turning the corner on him now. But why now? And why not years ago? You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast. The right take on entertainment.
This week's Celebrity Tweet of the Week comes courtesy of comedian Michael Ian Black. Now, Michael is absolutely obsessed with Trump, and if you read his Twitter feed, it's a lot of what he talks about. But he's also equally obsessed with the NRA. He hates the organization, and that's pretty clear when you watch what some of the things he says on social media. His latest tweet, based on some paper-thin accusations by McClatchy News, kind of gives you a sense of what he, the way he kind of shares his opinions on the NRA and just the general tone. Pleased to enjoy, as Borat would say. NRA appears to be a white supremacist terrorist organization partially funded by the Russian mob, or at least the FBI seems to think so. Anyway, <laughs> keep on keeping on, Michael, and uh, we'll leave the real news to everyone else. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. My hit tip of the week is pretty odd, even by my standards. I grew up loving the film Fright Night, the vampire movie with Chris Sarandon as a pretty creepy vampire next door. That said, I really found the recent remake with Colin Farrell to be a big yawn. Ah, just why do they bother? Adds nothing new to the material, just another boring retread. But you know what? I forgot all about the fact that there was a sequel to the original Fright Night, Fright Night Part 2. And it just recently popped up on my Amazon Prime uh, array of films. And I thought, hey, let me give it a tumble, as Dennis Miller is so often keen on saying. Well, you know what? It's a really nice surprise. Yes, we get an older Charlie Brewster. He's in college now. He's played again by William Ragsdale. And he's trying to put those vampire fighting days behind him. He's going to a therapist who is convincing him that, hey, none of that happened. You actually stumbled upon a serial killer. It was horrible, but there are no such things as vampires. It's time to move on with your life. And he's pretty much convinced as the movie opens. But of course, he runs into another vampire all the same. This one is Regine. She's a female vampire. And uh, she really does add something new and interesting to the, I guess you could call it the Fright Night franchise. Now, Fright Night 2 isn't perfect. Some of the scenes try way too hard to be wacky, and I think the first one had a much more organic feel to the comedy. Here, it's hit or miss. There are some funny moments. Other times, you can feel them stretching to be a little bit outrageous, and it doesn't quite work. And there's a lot of plot holes, and that's being kind. But you know what? Roddy McDowell is back as Peter Vincent, vampire killer. There are some good laughs here and some really creepy sequences. So as a sequel that... Should have been discarded. It's not so bad. It's certainly worth your time. If you love the first film, I think there's enough to buy into here to make it worth your while. And uh, while I don't expect any more Fright Night movies in the near future, I think if you're rediscovering this film, I think you're going to have a pleasant surprise. Now let's get to my chat with David Harsanyi. I first met David a few years ago when he was writing columns for the Denver Post. He's since moved away from Denver, and now he's a senior editor with TheFederalist.com, and a syndicated scribe to boot. He's got a great sense of proportion for the daily news, and that's really important because when he gets angry about a subject or a politician saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, it matters. It really matters. And I think for a lot of columnists, outrage is just their stock and trade. David isn't like that. He's got a really good sense of what's really important and what maybe is sort of fluff that just kind of captures the news cycle and will be moving on in just a matter of hours. Whenever his byline pops up on my screen or even on my Twitter feed, I stop what I'm doing and I give it a read. Plus, he's wrapping up a new book called First Freedom, Exploring Gun History in the United States. Check that out. It's coming soon. Here's my conversation with David Harsanyi. Well, David, again, thank you for joining the show. And I I thought we'd start with a little bit of a year in recap. I, I think I'm not the only person who is both right of center and a bit shocked at the last year under President Trump. 
some nice surprises, some of the usual things we kind of expected along the way. But what's your take overall on President Trump's first year, uh, maybe the, the good, the bad, and the ugly? <laughs> A lot of all, all of those things, I think. Uh, <laughs> I imagine, yeah, look, I think that in many ways I have been surprised on the policy front uh, in, in a good way on foreign policy, on uh, getting a tax bill through, even though obviously disappointed that Obamacare wasn't repealed, though I was always skeptical that that, that would be able to be accomplished anyway. Certainly, I don't really blame Trump for that, uh, despite all his promises, uh, you know, all the promises he made during the campaign to do that. On the other hand, you know, aesthetically and in, in, in other ways, I think the presidency uh, his presidency has been an ugly one, and um, not the sort of uh, not the sort of year I'd like to have. And or you know, certainly I, I hope it's not a precedent that our presidents are going to act and, and speak in the way that Donald Trump does. I'm not clutching my pearls here, but I think that quite often uh, he need needlessly corrodes the office and needlessly attacks people and, and so on. We we know all about that. So when people ask me to grade him, I sort of grade him, you know, uh, a D uh, and an A at the same time. It's not a normal presidency, right? So you have sort of two. You have what his bluster, which quite often doesn't really you know, it doesn't really match up with what he's doing policy-wise. Policy-wise, I think it's been okay. And I think that that might be because maybe the presidency's not as important as we think, which mm -hmm. I hope is true. Or perhaps, and I think this it's fair to say a little bit because he is not as affected by things in the way that other politicians are. And he, he just moves forward on something, you know, once he decides to do it. And why he does decide to do it, I don't know. Is anything surprising, maybe that kind of jumps out at you about the last year? I mean, for me, we knew exactly his persona. He lived up to it. And I think while the, the, the sort of the policy arena has been a surprise, anything really kind of shock you or, or kind of take you aback as far as what happened the last year? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that what we've seen sort of the corrosion of media standards. I think I have been long been a complainer about bias in media, but now I think we've seen something different. It's not just a sort of embedded bias there has been a you know everyone talks about how trump fans are corrupted by the man how they'll defend him no matter what he does and as i've written quite often i think that there's also a corruption happening on the other side of that of people who hate him no matter what he does and i think a lot of that you know a lot of that has sort of manifested in media coverage which has been terrible quite often really destructive in the way that they've moved forward on stories that simply weren't true. And I think a lot of that is driven by um, a conspiracy theory about about the Russians winning the election for Trump. Now, I'm not saying that there's no I'm not saying that it's completely implausible that someone in the Trump campaign didn't talk to someone in Russia and all the things, you know, that Mueller's investigating. But the idea that the election, that the election itself had been, you know, somehow manipulated to let Donald Trump win, I think, is a conspiracy theory that's affected people in a way that I didn't think it would. I thought uh, cooler heads would prevail after maybe a month or two, but that hadn't happened. Here's my million dollar question. I'm based here in Denver, and I'm kind of hunkered down a bit. I'm not on the East Coast. I'm not in D.C. I've got to think there must be some journalists who are watching everything unfold and thinking, my goodness, what what are my colleagues doing? doing? What are they doing to the profession that I love and I care about and that matters so much? Do you get the sense either either anecdotally or otherwise that 
there are some people in the media industry just aghast at the coverage? I don't know how I would describe their view of it, but I think that we saw a little bit of pushback uh, with the Michael Wolff book where there were, you know, reporters openly saying this is this is basically, you know, they were saying that there's enough of this is fiction that we shouldn't be treating the whole thing seriously. And I think that's important because there's no way that that would have happened otherwise. But um, I, and I, I bet you tons of journalists don't like what's going on. But I think what, you know, political journalists are sort of they've sort of backed themselves up against a wall simply because they've 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 thrown in with this theory about Donald Trump that, and it was uh, something that they all believed and now they're just working backwards to prove it. And it's very hard to sort of get out of that cycle. And I don't blame reporters only. I mean, you're talking about editors in newsrooms and assignment editors and things of that nature. And I think Donald Trump, because of his disposition, his aggressive disposition when it comes to journalists, sort of fuels them to try to get the guy. And uh, it's I think it's just unhealthy. They On both both ends of this, I think it's it's a relationship that's just unhealthy. I, I would rather have an antagonistic press, frankly, than than one that, that we had for eight years under Barack Obama. But I think it's gotten to a point where they've you know, they've destroyed their own credibility with at least half the country. And and that's that's you know, that's just bad in, in a free nation because we're, people are unsure where to go to get reliable information. You, you mentioned Fire and Fury and some of the criticisms against it. I thought the most pointed was from actually Megan McCain from, of all places, The View. But, you know, they still let that book kind of kind of move the narrative over week to week. Is there any other lesson to be learned from that book? I mean, I'm not even talking about the contents, but, you know, the you talk about Trump, in a sense, potentially staining the presidency with his behavior and how boorish he can be. Is, is the fire and fury stain, is that going to be is difficult to wash away? For the media? Yeah. Um, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, listen, so you just mentioned this, but there were many journalists out there who were skeptical about the book, but yet let the book drive their coverage. So it's like, we're just asking questions. You know, he brought it up, we're asking questions. So I, I think that that creates a precedent that's not very good. And what really strengthens that precedent is that guy made a ton of money, right? So <laughs> writing this book, and that's a, an incentive to do it again and over and over again. Uh, the problem there is it's always, these kind of books have always been around. The difference this time is that it, that, that people let it and the, and the rumors in it drive their coverage. And that's never, I should say never, but in recent years and the years I've been watching politics and covering politics has not happened. So that creates a really bad precedent. I don't know I don't know that anyone's learning any lessons anymore. I think we're almost past that. I think everyone's just moving forward on their tracks, on their lanes. I was talking to a local talk show host who mentioned to me, kind of off air, just saying, I'm kind of exhausted. I'm burned out. I, just covering the news cycle, it's so heavy. It's so, you know, there hasn't been a slow news day in about a year and a half, if not more. Uh, as someone who's in this industry, do you feel that or are you energized by it or is it sort of a maybe a combination of all the above? Yeah, I mean, I think it was maybe last week I tweeted that same exact sentiment out. I mean, it's exhausting. Trump's exhausting. The reaction, the melodrama around everything he says is exhausting. Trying to figure out if the media's stories are correct or are they, you know, are these sources lying to us? That's exhausting. Figuring out what's going on is exhausting. So I, I can't say I'm, I mean, there are some days I feel energized by it, but um more often than not, I, I don't. And it's not because 
it's not because there's some big, you know, meltdown every day. I, I don't mind news. I want news. It's that it's that so much of it is frivolous and so much of it is untrue and so much of it is hypocritical of the people, you know, laying these claims and it becomes so, and people have gotten really nasty, frankly, you know, so it be, it's just, especially in social media, it's not how it used to be. Sound like an old, like an old timer now or something, but I'm just, you know, I'm just saying it's not how it used to be. It's much, you know, you, every, People have always been nasty and to some extent, especially partisans can be that way. But at least there was always sort of a, a space for arguing about the actual policy. But now the initial inclination of everyone of the left, it's usually some kind of identity politics, right? Immediately, who are you? Are you a white middle aged guy? We don't listen to you. Uh, and on, on the other side, sometimes it's or on both sides, actually, it's to try to dig into your soul and, uh, you know, under and, and immediately splatter your supposed intentions all over social media, meaning no one's speaking about the actual issues. They're just talking about why you're taking the position you're taking. It's like a meta debate or something. And it's I, I think it, it's just not as fun to me, at least, as just debating ideas and policy and, and people. So yeah. I couldn't agree more. I do think that this is still fairly new to our culture, and I'm still hoping that we will mature uh, beyond that and, and realize that, hey, when we act like an absolute jerk, there are thousands, if not millions of people who can see us act that way. And maybe that'll be a, a curb on the, uh, the conversation, but we'll, we'll have to see about that. But uh, we're talking with David Harsani, Senior Editor at TheFederalist.com and a syndicated columnist. And I want to move on to Hollywood. And, you know, uh, there's so much to talk about here. I want to talk briefly about the movie-going experience because I know that the box office recovered a bit late last year, but the summer was terrible. And I, I, you know, anecdotally, I keep speaking to people who just say, and not even from a political perspective, I just don't see as many movies as I used to. I just don't go to the theater anymore. From your perspective, are you hearing that as well? And what are your thoughts about sort of the act of going to the theater? That is it changing, or is it just the same as it ever was? Wow, I don't know. That's hard for me to answer because once I had kids, I went to the theater less. Mm -hmm. Or when I did go, I would see things that I wouldn't necessarily, you know, want to see. Though I, you know, so lately I've actually gone maybe to theater more than usual. But I, I my sense is that people aren't, um, and that probably has something to do. And I'm sure you've discussed this on here. Has something to do with the the range of choices we have and the sort of high quality choices maybe we have on, you know not just cable, but, you know, all, all the outlets that people watch. So um, I, I find myself, uh, I find myself, it, it, most of the big blockbuster movies I've, I've found boring lately. So I, I don't feel inclined to go see like Avengers Infinity War or whatever it's called. <laughs> I don't even know what it's called. Um, so I probably won't go as much as I, I would have mm. if, if, you know, setting aside the kids and all that, but I, I feel like I'd like to go. I like the movie experience, but I don't really see the movie. I don't really see movies coming out that excite me in the same way. Gotcha. And that's just my perception. It's not, you know, I, I, I don't really have deep. I haven't really thought deeply about it. <laughs> that's okay. Just well, throwing that out there. Yeah. I, I wrote a story this week about the new movie 12 Strong, which I thought was kind of a red state ready movie. And I mentioned that one of the things that could work against it is that Michael Shannon is a star. Now, he, he's a very good actor. He's done a lot of great work. But also mm -hmm. last year after the Trump election, he said that Trump voters were ready for the urn, meaning they basically should die off and, and the world would be a better place. And I, you know, I, I wonder, here's this patriotic movie that kind of would appeal to conservatives, and you got someone like that in the film. We, talk about sort of, the, the, is, is there a disconnect going on? Because even someone like Meryl Streep, who is, 
beloved for her skills, she's almost become toxic in a, in a Sean Penn kind of sense for many on the right. Is is that going to hurt the Hollywood brand or, or are these sort of really the diehards who make up a very small percentage of the movie going public? Yeah, I've actually thought about that a bit because, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was, you know, a Republican and, uh, you know, he hated James Fonda or, you know, and, and others. So we couldn't go see certain movies because he wouldn't go see those movies. I've never been that way. I mean, there there is a limit for me. So I typically would avoid Sean Penn. I mean, I'm just the guy annoys me. So I, it's hard for me to sit through two hours of him. Um, Michael Shannon, though, I mean, I, he is a good actor. And just because he has an opinion about politics doesn't really isn't going to dissuade me from seeing something with him in it. And I wonder how often a conservative actually thinks through mm-hmm. uh, the opinions of an actor, especially someone like that who is who's famous, but he's not sort of it's not a, you know, a big star in the same way like Meryl Streep is, who I think lately has done things that might turn off people more than she has before. So I would say that if, for instance, uh, someone in Dunkirk, a movie I really wanted to see, uh, you know, had said some terrible things about Trump voters and conservatives, I I would still go see the movie. It would be very, you know, it'd have to be something really terrible for me to avoid it. I'm just, I've never been, you know, one of these guys that like gets behind it economic boycotts of companies unless they're doing something really you know horrible so yeah yeah you know it's, and i agree although i i think that um i don't care that ben affleck doesn't agree with my policies because my wife doesn't agree with my policies right i'm used to that it's when they kind of go to the next level or if they if they kind of take a break from attacking a trump and they attack the voters it seems a little more personal but it is interesting and i i i I guess well, I, I, can I just add one thing? I, I totally agree with what you just said. Typically, if someone disagrees, I should have made a distinction there. If someone disagrees with me, why wouldn't I go see their movies? We all disagree on stuff, right? Um, so it is different when someone says something so horrible. Um, the problem is I don't take those people that seriously most of the time, meaning I don't know that he has any clue about what's going on, and I'm not sure I should treat his opinion very seriously. I mostly have a very low opinion of actors in the sense that I think someone writes a line for them and they just say it. Some people repeat them really well and with a lot of uh, bogus emotion, um, but that doesn't mean I have to take them very seriously and I don't. Most of them, when you hear them speak, are not impressive and some some are, but oftentimes they're not. I don't know enough about Michael Shannon to say. (laughs) One thing I want to talk about real briefly is the Me Too movement and obviously it's not just Hollywood, but Hollywood has been one of the epicenters because of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. You know, now it's changing. It's getting a little bit, a little fuzzier with the Aziz Ansari story about the the date from hell. And I was kind of curious, do you, are you positive? Are you, are you kind of optimistic that change really will be happening, if not in the culture, maybe even the Hollywood culture? Or is this, you know, more, you know, lapel pins and, and AIDS ribbons and things that just are virtue signaling and they kind of start and stop there? Well, as usual, you know, you have a movement that that is genuine and, and, and is dealing with a a real problem in society and, and no one denies that. But then you have other people sort of hijack it in a way uh, for their own sort of hobby horses and so on. Um, so it's gotten really messy. So I think that there has been a real change in Hollywood and elsewhere. But now, you know, and then you feel like maybe it's become a bit of a witch hunt. So I wish people would take these because early on, I I noticed that there was sort of a conflation of serious, uh, you know, stories of, of, and, you know, sexual assault and some really bad stuff. And then, you know, someone who said something wrong or made someone feel uncomfortable and we were just dip, or others were just dumping them all into the same 
tranche. You know, I think that that's problematic to to use a word because obviously, you know, some crimes are much worse than others. Well, let me, so let me I stop know, you there. Yeah, you're doing yeah. the Matt Damon <laughs> defense, which A is as sound as can be, and B he got yelled at and basically shut down. So uh, you know, when Matt Damon tried to talk about that very same issue, saying, "Hey." There are gradations here. You can't just put them all together. He was shamed, and, and he actually just came out and said, I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> so I'm not disagreeing with you, David, but I, it, we're in this sort of weird space where even a, a very sensical kind of a, a comment could be can be not in line. So I, I it just... I, well, and, that, and that's a problem. People are scared to say anything, mm-hmm. right? There's a there's, there's sort of an environment of fear. And the problem with this is that they, there's a legitimate case to be made that there are horrible people out there and we should be going after them. But then people who say that they're, you know, a, I, I don't exactly know what Matt Damon said, but if, if it, if obviously I agree that there are, you know, these cases are very different and we should treat them, you know, that's... A, these movements are a problem because they treat all all incidents equally, right? So, I, like, I think that perhaps when you pressure someone on a date uh, to do things you don't want that they might not want to do, that's because you might be sleazy or you might not know what's going on or you might, uh, you, you you know, or whatever. Um, we should treat that very differently than we do a sexual assault or someone walking, you know, pushing themselves on you physically. So um, I'm not I don't write about this very often. I, I have opinions because I have opinions on everything. But <laughs> I, I think I think when I think that due process does matter and we can't simply, you know, a lot of the early uh, Kevin Spacey and so on, the, the, you know, these early incidents that we learned about the 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 the, fo- the person who was in focus basically admitted that they had done the things that they were accused of, right? Yeah, and there so, were so many examples. It wasn't just like two accusations; it was like dozens. Right. So I have those people. Most of those stories, all of those stories, sound like sleazy or criminal or you know just terrible to me. Um, and I, I think that actually the movement. The Me Too movement was moving along in the right way. But since then, I, I, there have been stories like I think James Franco, the James Franco thing is one where I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that that guy would be was going to be railroaded. I don't particularly like him, but I thought he was going to be railroaded. I mean, I'm not sure what happened there, but clearly what the one of the women was saying or I'm not sure if there were more than one woman. I don't know. But whatever, they, you know, what they were saying was not exactly um, it just sounded like. It wasn't anything criminal that, or maybe I mean, you know more about this. I'm not sure. I no, mean, it was, was there? It was, you know, I, I know what you're saying, and I mostly agree. It was maybe less professional, but it certainly wasn't the full Harvey Weinstein. And again, that that does matter. We, we there are, you know, <laughs> there are gradations here. And until we have that conversation in full, then I think I think the movement will suffer for it, and I think we'll see the progress. But uh, yeah, it is tough to talk about and. Uh, you know, I think sometimes things start with good intentions and they make change and then all of a sudden they get twisted and torn. And that's one of the uh, one of the fallouts from social media. I think things, you know, I think that we, we get reduced to those sound bites and all of a sudden uh, a, a good, thoughtful conversation is turned on its head. Well, and then you have people who take advantage and, and, and men and women can take advantage of a situation and start, you know, going after people who are innocent simply because they, they have problems with them and to pretend that that never happens as some people do in the Me Too movement is, is, is wrong as well because we've seen it happen in the world. So I don't know what the percentages are or whatever, but it just, it always worries me when you have sort of 
uh, and I don't want to call them a mob in a negative way, but a big, large group of people in a movement uh, going after another group of people. So it, it shouldn't be that way. These cases should be judged on their merits or, you know, and, and, and hopefully that people start doing that. One last question, David. Uh, looking at the culture as we headed to 2018, you know, I think a lot of people like Donald Trump because he spoke from the hip. He was politically incorrect. He didn't, you know, he would fight back. He didn't sort of couch his words in little slogans and things. And I think, I think there's still a, 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 sem- a sort of a section of his of his fans that are, you know, still on board with that. And yet we see other things that, you know, what's happening on college campuses and. You think about, you know, I read stories from The Hollywood Reporter. They talk about how in the writer's room, people are afraid to say certain things or write certain things. Do you think that we're heading in a more sort of better direction as far as free speech in 2018? Or do you think we're still stuck in this place where you, if you say the wrong thing, it's it's not going to work out well for you? No, I think free speech is headed in a bad, very bad direction in many ways. First of all, you have these giant corporations that can, you know, that that control the flow of information quite often that that can manipulate what goes on because they don't like what someone is, you know, whether someone is saying something or, you know, politically incorrect or not. I don't think it's we're at a, you know, we're at a let's panic point in this trajectory, but it is a problem. And then if I was a young person and if I was in school and if I was elsewhere, I would probably be far more concerned with what I, I say, because obviously uh, and I see it, you know, just through social media. Sometimes I use phrases or words that apparently are frowned upon, you know. So I imagine that a lot of people are scared to speak up. I, I've always thought that, that 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 people who, for instance, are polled about political issues lie. I know they lie because when elections happen, they don't match up with what people yeah. say about those issues. So, for instance, one of those issues I think that people lie about quite often is immigration. Um, I don't think that a, that a college student would feel free to talk about illegal immigration in the way that a lot of people think about it and perhaps they think about it. So, yeah, that's a problem. But, you know, part of that problem are the teachers and the environment they're in. But the other part of the problem is that kids and everyone else, and they're not really kids anymore, they need to speak up and not be so scared to do it. Uh, there are probably other people right near them who agree with them. And I think that that sort of, you know, quote unquote, bravery is contagious. Um, but obviously other people have, don't want their careers ruined and so on. So that's one of the problems. I mean, everyone's, all the press is always talking about how their freedoms are under attack from Trump because he's saying mean things about them. Actually, they're as free as can be. I know that because the the intensity in which they go against him every single day shows that they are not inhibited at all from, from, from expressing themselves. Other people so I, I think that that's that's a concern. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it reminds me of the Bush years when the Tim Robbins of the world would say, we can't speak out. We're being held back. And of course, he said something about 16 different potential platforms. So it didn't really matter. But uh, right. And then we make TVs and movie shows that sort of, uh, you know, that bash us over the head, you know, with analogies and metaphors about, you know, Trump. So it's 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 just ridiculous. Yeah. No, I have not seen The Handmaid's Tale, but uh, I, should, <laughs> I should probably catch up with it. But uh, well, thanks. But David again. Simon, I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. That's David okay. Simon is making a uh, is making a TV series of The Plot Against America by um, Philip Roth book. You know where America is essentially becomes a Nazi state. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just so obvious. And you know, and the book's a fine book, but you know, it's just it, it's incredible how these people have blinders on when others are in charge and whenever there's a Republican, we have to go through the same uh, sort of cultural uh, 
sanctimony every single time. So anyway. Yeah, and you know, and that actually reminds me, before I let you go, that a really talented writer-director is Alexander Payne, who is behind About mm-hmm. Schmidt and Sideways, so many good movies. Well, his newest movie, Downsizing, is flat-out terrible. I was, I was cringing in my seat. And here's one of the smartest filmmakers in Hollywood, but I think he wanted to tell a story that had a lot of messages in it, and I think that really corrupted his vision, and that's a shame. And uh, it's not the first time it happens, and uh, it's, it's, I think when you've got the message first and the story second and third, I think it never really works out that well. Yeah, I mean, I had hope for that movie. The, the, the preview actually looks somewhat interesting, but uh, then I read the reviews and I <laughs> avoided it. All right. Well, thanks again, David, for joining the HitCast. You can check out David's work at thefederalist.com and keep an eye out for his upcoming book, First Freedom, which looks at the history of guns in the United States. David, love your work and uh, hope we can uh, check in with you down the road. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START myhealthpolicy.com. Meredith Fiera is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates myhealthpolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Fiera, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START, MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Fiera is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.